Colonel Douglas McGregor, who is a fellow I've wanted to have on the show for a while. He's absolutely spitting truth about the war in Ukraine. And um, he's got credentials, you know, forever on this. So please stick around to listen to what he has to say. What you are seeing and hearing in the media, which to me is so off, so untrue, so manipulative, I can barely watch it anymore. And I only do, I only watch Ukraine coverage if I'm going to do an item on it for the show and I have to know what they're saying. But I almost can't suffer through it anymore. It's such a challenge for me as a former a former journalist. So Colonel McGregor um, is bringing truth. He knows about war fighting. He knows the region well. He's also a PhD brilliant, brilliant guy, and he can't do anything but speak the truth. And the reason I know that is because he takes a lot of flack for speaking truth, um, as anybody does these days, as you guys know. So one of the things we talk about is how the support for Ukraine and keeping the war going and escalating the war is part of a massive, massive propaganda campaign that is emanating from you know, what we call the neocons, the neoconservatives in Washington, D.C. It makes absolutely no sense what they're doing because the Russians are more than likely going to win this thing. And so the civilian deaths happening in the Ukraine right now are probably, are there for naught. Um, and we're not hearing that from people. If you question blind support for more equipment, more hardware, more weapons to Ukraine, you're considered a friend of Putin. That's absolute garbage. It's garbage. My main concern has always been as a journalist for, especially in wartime, is obviously for the civilians. That's my concern. And fighting to the last Ukrainian, which is the phrase that's being kicked about Washington right now, is it's wrong. This can be settled. And the idea that if America and other countries, Canada included, just keep sending them more stuff, they're going to win. There's a lot of very smart people who think that that is not going to happen. And Colonel McGregor is one of them. So this is my interview with Colonel Douglas McGregor. Hi, Colonel Douglas McGregor. How are you doing? Wonderful. Yeah, we were talking just before we started rolling on this a little bit about um, how you are a voice of enlightenment in all of this. I mean, whether people agree with what you say or not, you certainly have the bona fides to say it and and don't bring any agendas uh, to the argument. But yet the pushback on you has been really, really over the top, hasn't it? Yeah, I guess uh, that comes with the territory these days. There's not much room for political realism in Washington, D.C. They don't like it, do they? <laughs> no, we <clears throat> have lots of people that are once again doing things that we've done repeatedly uh, on a number of failed interventions and try to posture morally and justify anything that uh, the D.C. community wants to do on the grounds that they are somehow or another in uh, charge of uh, moral superiority and supremacy, and therefore anyone who disagrees with them is inherently immoral. Yeah, there's something really, really wrong. And, and, and part of what's really wrong is that I'm waking up every day 
you know, at my age, worrying about nuclear war again, which is something I I never thought I I would live through. But it's not just worrying about nuclear war. It's being deeply, deeply affected by the casualness with which nuclear war seems to be being discussed right now. I mean, it's just awful. Oh, you've just made a a very important point, and you could not be more right. For some reason, uh, having lived for decades in an environment where there was an understanding that whatever you did vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, you wanted to avoid a direct collision because it could very rapidly escalate to the nuclear level. And everyone understood that that meant effectively the wholesale destruction of your civilization. Now, all of a sudden, when you mention it, uh, the various neocons dismiss you out of hand as, oh, that's impossible. That will never happen. Uh, which I find interesting, but but frightening, as, as you suggest, because if you threaten a country's existence, and it's not a stretch to argue that the Biden administration, supported overwhelmingly on both sides of the aisle by lots of uh, wannabe political figures in Washington, D.C., I say wannabe because uh, even though they may hold office, they don't all get the attention they crave. Right are all willing to stand up and uh, threaten Russia, not just uh, in Ukraine, but the Russian state and uh, ultimately the Russian population. And when you, when you listen to that, you have to ask yourself, what, what planet are these people on? Because that's the, the sole set of circumstances under which the Russians, I think, would use a nuclear weapon is in the event that they thought we were interested in destroying them and would advance to their borders, which is ultimately one of the reasons that uh, Putin made the decision uh, to intervene in Ukraine, because he couldn't allow this presence right on Russia's border, literally uh, within a flight time of a few minutes by any missile that we carried to station there, uh, in range of Russian nuclear forces. But for some reason, nobody, nobody brings it up. Nobody brings it up. And I, I'm really struggling with it because it makes me worried about a whole bunch of things about the ruling, you know, elites these days um, and how stupid or crazy they may be. I, I can't quite figure it out. But like, I, I know that you're a, a very, very highly regarded warfighter. You know, you're the real deal. You've written books on strategy and held very high positions in the military. And I know that's your expertise, but I just feel like I need to run this by you too. What is going on psychologically, do you think, with these people that they just aren't getting it? Is it generational? Is it just that we're, I think you and I are of the same generation within a couple of years, but is it just that we remember the threat of nuclear war and how it was talked about and how the anti-nuke people were so you know, great at really convincing us that this is something that should never happen? Or is there something else going on that I'm just not getting? Well, Trisha, I think that's part of it. Uh, You're right. Anyone who grew up in the 50s, 60s, uh, probably is acutely sensitive to the issue in ways that today's Americans are not. But I think there's something else at work, and that's the last 30 years. If you go back to 1990 and everything that's happened since Desert Storm, uh, there has been this uh, built-in assumption that uh, there's no one else out there who can really challenge us, that we can act with impunity, that our power is limitless and inexhaustible, 
that there's literally anything that we want to do, we can do. And we become very accustomed to bullying people, either by the use of the financial system and our control of SWIFT and these other things, and with the use of American military power. Either you agree with us, you do as we tell you to do, behave as we would like you to behave, or we threaten you. And uh, under the worst uh, conditions, we'll use American military power against you. And let's be frank, uh, until Russia, none of the states that we have bullied or attacked or invaded or intervened in, whatever you, whatever language you want to use, has been in a position to really defend themselves effectively against us. And we've decided that Russia is weak. Well, Russia is certainly far, far weaker as a, as a state than the Soviet Union was. There's no question about that. But I think we've uh, overreached. And we're trying to convince everyone in the world that they have overreached. And the point that I continue to make people is that there's a vast difference between the United States that is thousands of miles away from this war and Russia, who is literally fighting on their own doorstep. And that that changes the equation, but we don't seem to get it. Well, and I'm just because I don't really follow um, the military so much. I mean, I do kind of, I guess, as a general generalized reporter interested in knowing things. But but I, I actually thought of this this morning. Is the American military, given the situation it's in right now, right as we're speaking, you and I, would would they be ready to take on Russia in an actual a conflict between the two countries directly? Uh, I think the short answer is no. Uh, I think anybody with any uh, degree of understanding inside the Department of Defense would tell you that that's absolutely out of the question. Let me just stop and consider for a minute that we have de- largely depleted the stocks of these uh, so-called Javelin missiles, as well as a host of other munitions and weapon systems, in a very short period of time, simply by supplying the Ukrainians. We are not postured for anything that lasts longer than a few weeks, if that. Well, And so the notion that we are prepared to fight anybody is outrageous. That doesn't even begin to address all the problems with how we're organized to fight uh, and uh, the morale problems that deeply affect uh, the armed forces at the moment. Yeah, that's really interesting you would say that because... Um... Uh, you know, obviously, the last war was the was the Iraq War. I guess Iraq and Afghanistan, and and the troops fought it because, uh, well, Afghanistan was directly connected to nine eleven. Iraq, obviously, not so. But, but, but the people who fought it thought it was when they went. That's why many of them signed up. Right. How would you guess um, American troops would feel now if they were dispatched to fight a war? for Ukraine against Russia like would are they are they captured by the propaganda in the same way they were around Iraq or are they smarter now and more suspicious now i know they don't have a choice but but are they more suspicious now because of the wmd situation that didn't happen well i think uh, if it depends on what level you're talking about uh, what's uh, disappointing to me is that people at the top over the last 30 years have been systematically selected to ensure that whoever ultimately reaches senior rank is a shameless conformist. Right. In other words, someone who's not going to question anything, who's simply going to go along. Yeah. So at the top, uh, I think you've got lots of people who decided it's in their interest, whatever comes down the road, 
you know, it doesn't make much difference to them. It's simply in their personal interest. And I don't think they have any real war fighting experience. And what I mean by that is they haven't been in any pitched battles against an enemy that was remotely capable of challenging them. In other words, they've always, as senior officers, operated in an environment where we could dominate anybody with firepower instantly yeah. and effectively force our will on them. And And they haven't had the experience of uh, an environment in which it could go either way, depending upon what each side did. So that's part of the problem. The second thing is when you get down below the senior officer level, yeah, I think the officers that are in the middle, and by that I mean uh, majors, lieutenant colonels, captains, they're much more sober-minded because they're inside the formations. They know the problems that they've got in those units. They know what units are at uh, low-end strength, in other words, that may be under strength. They know the true state of training. They know what they can and can't do with the weapon systems. There, I think people are much more sober-minded. I mean, the first question that anybody with any sense would ask is, well, if you send us into Ukraine, how far do you want us to go? Uh, And if you start talking about moving 180, 200, 300 miles, which is what that country requires to come to grips with the enemy, they're going to look at you and say, how do we do that? We don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the logistical support structure. How do we maintain command and control? I think I think there are a lot of sober-minded people there. And when you get to the enlisted level, the soldiers, and the only ones I can talk about are really combat soldiers. I, most of the combat soldiers, infantry and armor, I think, look at this and say, are you a lunatic? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're, they're probably the most sober-minded people. They're closest to where the fighting is going to happen, and they see this is crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, it, there's a guy named Seth Moulton who um, – not sure if he's a senator or a congressman, but one of the one or the other who I interviewed for my book, and he was kind of running the show for the Marines at the Najaf Cemetery battle, which is an amazing story, actually. Mm-hmm. And 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 he was very circumspect in that discussion. He was just back and kind of traumatized by it. A lot of crazy stuff happened. And um and he he seemed like he'd become this kind of learned wise person about war. And yet on this issue, I see him on Fox News cheerleading and cheerleading escalation. And I can't even believe it's the same guy. I don't know what happens when people get to D.C., but uh, he's not the same guy I spoke to in in 2005. Well, that's an interesting observation. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Everything depends on your personal experience and your perspective. I was fortunate in that while I was on active duty, I was operating at at every level, all the way from the bottom to the very top. And so I saw decision-making, how good it was on occasion and how really bad it was on most occasions. And the lack of professional understanding that underpinned decisions that that led to not necessarily catastrophe, but bad outcomes. Yeah. Uh, I I just think uh, it depends on, uh, you know, your view of Russia, and clearly, we have a lot of people that don't seem to understand that Russia today is not the Soviet Union. There is the Communist Party of the Soviet Union is not in control. There is no KGB force as it once existed. You know, the KGB and its predecessor, the NKVD, had massive numbers of troops uh, whose principal job was to compel everyone to fight who didn't want to, including executing large numbers of people I mean, during the Second World War. The NKVD executed one million Soviet soldiers who refused to fight for communism. Wow. So 
<clears throat> that that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a Russian national state. Its economy is uh, probably 12th or 13th in the world. It's behind the Republic of South Korea that has 49 million people uh, versus Russia that's got a little over 140 million. And uh, Russia is not a robust, aggressive military power as it once was. I mean, if you look at the army, the Russian army is doing about all that it can really do. The notion that they could attack NATO is laughable. Uh, so I... <clears throat> I, I find it odd, but I guess part of it is the sort of knee-jerk reaction that it's Russia, Russia is bad, Russia must be defeated kind of thing, which I mm -hmm. think is what Steve Cohen was getting at on many occasions, don't you? Oh, I absolutely do. I mean, I, I saw a miraculous moment. I've actually played it on the show a couple of times when he's on, he was on with Max Boot, probably on Tucker. And um, Max Boot accused him of some terrible thing, and Stephen rose up, he's got that really that really lovely kind of intellectual dignity and said, what was it you just said? I think Boot accused him of being a Putin puppet oh, or some yeah. dumb thing. And and he just kind of rose up and, and exposed Boot for the absolute buffoon he is. I mean, that he ever, I, I never understood how he ended up in the Trump administration, but not the Trump administration. Who was the the very very hawkish person who ended up in the Trump administration? Nobody could uh, Bolton, right? Yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, yeah, Stephen Stephen Cohen was a you know he was a very brave and um, insightful guy who I think he predicted that this was going to happen. And in the thing he wrote just like a year before he died, I think he the book he wrote said that war with Russia was coming. Well, the good news is that, uh, and I say good news because it is, the majority of American people are completely disinterested in going to war in Eastern Europe. Yeah. If you look at the polls, it's patently obvious. Uh, I think uh, Tucker Carlson last night went down the list of the top 10 issues for American voters based on polling data. Yeah. Ukraine wasn't on the list. Yeah, I know. Uh, I think shocking. that's that's a good thing. Uh, but we have had that before, before World War One and World War Two. That was the attitude inside the American population, the electorate. And on both occasions, we had leftist presidents who found ways to drag us into the war that we would have otherwise never entered or never joined. Mm -hmm. I don't think people understand that. Americans historically have been very grateful uh, for the opportunity to live on an island between the Atlantic and the Pacific away from the, the wars of Eurasia. I think that's still the case. Uh, but that doesn't exclude the possibility that this administration and its supporters in the swamp, and, and again, as I point out to people, you stop talking about Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, it's Those a uniparty. are yeah. meaningless. Yeah. Absolute nonsense. Uh, the 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 party itself is, as you say, a kind of uniparty, a swampist organization. There's there's always the outside possibility that things could be fabricated to drag us in. You know, one of the things <clears throat> that I found interesting was in June of 2019, when uh, the administration at that point was really not very hands on, and it, it this is at a point in time where I think the president. Uh, trusted anybody in uniform with stars on their shoulders. Yeah. And the CENTCOM commander had plotted this flight path for the Global Hawk, an unmanned aerial surveillance platform 
that took the uh, Global Hawk right along the edge of the air defense uh, information and identification zone for Iran. In other words, right up the middle of the Strait of Hormuz and uh, right up the middle of the Persian Gulf. Knowing full well, given the size of this monstrous unmanned uh, aircraft and its close proximity to the Iranian ADIS, that somebody would probably shoot it down, which, of course, is what happened. Yeah. And then uh, there was this enormous effort by uh, the people inside and outside of the administration to bring on a war with Iran, yeah. uh, which you know was something that was incubating for a long time. And ultimately, inside the Oval Office, surrounded by large numbers of people that were representing the military estate and the Hill, trying to convince him to march into this abyss, he said no. Thank goodness he said no. And he never gets much credit for that. But believe me, that's a tough thing for a president to say. I don't see any evidence with the current president that he has the presence of mind or understanding to just say no. Well, that story is kind of the tragedy of the Trump presidency, in a sense, because he was not surrounded by the best people at all times. And I think he was, you know, regardless of what you think about his, you know, he was too lippy and culturally offensive at times. But let's just forget that and look at some of his, you know, the policies. That's what you have to do. You have to just look at at what he wanted to do. And I remember that he had been um, sort of agile enough intellectually to switch from supporting the Iraq war to having problems with it, which I really respected. And, And I felt that he'd learned the lessons of these sort of misbegotten, um, military misadventures in places like Iraq, and and that he was going to bring that to the White House, which I, I think he did. But you can't just bring that unless you're surrounded by people who really will go to war for you against the D.C. establishment, right? And he could never, he was never able to do that, was he? No, I don't think so. And I mean, we could, we could spend a lot of time talking about uh, the simple truth is that personnel uh, is policy. Yeah. And, uh, that, that was an egregious failure. My, my only concern is that, uh, you know, my, one of, one of my, uh, grandfathers served in the first world war and, uh, it's a long story because my, my maternal, uh, ancestors were Quakers and he was the first in a direct line that had served in the, uh, in the military in any fashion since the English civil wars. Apparently, my Scottish, English, and Welsh ancestors who emerged from Cromwell's wars were so appalled by what they had seen and so depressed by the whole business that they became pacifists, yeah, uh, Quakers. And ultimately, they had to emigrate and come to the United States, and they landed in a place called Burlington, New Jersey. Now, of course, when they landed there, there was nothing, uh, so that everything had to be built from scratch. But that was the family that I was raised in, and... Uh, he ultimately, for family reasons, ended up enlisting after he graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in the First World War. And uh, I remember arguments between him and my mother and others about Vietnam. And, uh, you know, my mother would say, well, we have to support the troops. We've got to support the troops. He would become enraged and he would say, if you support the troops, bring them home, get them out. 
because he came back from the first war appalled at the slaughter, hating Woodrow Wilson, despising all of these people that talked about liberal democracy and, and arguing that the only thing we did was rescue the French and British imperialists from certain defeat. Yeah. And he felt that we should never have been in that war. Well, <clears throat> as I've grown older, Trish, I have gradually concluded that he was very right. And one of the things he always used to say, if you can't find Americans on the sidewalk that can tell you exactly where the place is that you want to use them in a war, don't go. Oh, I love that. That's really clever. <laughs> yeah, he's right. Yeah, yeah. And right now, I mean, if you say, what, what's, what do you think about what happened uh, at Zaborysha? in eastern Ukraine last night. And the man says, well, I'm worried about putting food on the table. I'm worried about paying for gasoline. I'm worried about my mortgage. You know, just go down the list. I'm, I'm worried about the criminality. I can't go to the 7-Eleven without fear of being killed. These kinds of things, they're all very meaningful. And Zavarisha is not. Well, it's quite interesting because um, we were talking about, about Joe Biden earlier and who he's surrounded by, and and although I hate everything he says about Ukraine, oddly he seems to be holding the line about more escalation, doesn't he? In your view, I know he's writing checks and they're sending weapons and and stuff, but he seems to be kind of moderate on more engagement. Am I right about that? You know, I don't know. Uh, I, I thought so at first until he gave this speech in Warsaw, where he talked about effectively removing Putin from power right, and seemed overwrought by the great danger presented by, you know, the Russians and, and uh, we're going to defend every inch of territory that's NATO and so forth. So on. Uh, that was unhinged in my judgment. And I've never been comfortable with this business of removing other people's governments, especially uh, removing individual leaders. This kind of thing is is a disaster. I mean, it goes all the way back to the Second World War and unconditional surrender, which Churchill mentioned when it was announced. You know, he was shocked. It had never been discussed with him. And he immediately concluded this is a disaster. This is going to cause the war to last for years longer than it otherwise would. <clears throat> I, I'm very uncomfortable with that sort of business. And it seems to be uh, par for the course with this administration. But again, when I say this administration, that's misleading, Trish, because you can point to all sorts of people in the so-called opposition party, if there is one, that are just as, uh, you know, excited and enthusiastic about dragging us into a direct confrontation with Russia as anybody else in, in the Biden administration. Well, it also seems now, and you wrote about this in in one of your more recent blogs, that this is not just sort of the usual kind of tomfoolery, but rather that there's now kind of a bigger globalist agenda attached to this too. And one of the ways I know that to be true is because our prime minister, you know, the kind of Instagram influencer prime minister, which is pretty much all he does is have his picture taken, um, was in Ukraine being photo-opped, right? And we, yes. you know, Canada, we we stayed out of Iraq. Like, we, we were smart. And the Canadian public was having none of it. You could not have gotten the citizenry here behind the Iraq war. 
Um, and yet he's over there doing his thing with Zelensky. I don't know. Do you get social credit points or something for posing with him if you're a world leader? But, but I'm, I'm just wondering if, especially based on what you wrote about this, if you feel that the, this kind of broader globalist agenda about making everything more kind of homogeneous is also perhaps driving a bit of what's happening in Ukraine. I don't think there's any question of that. Uh, and globalism is bound up with uh, our dominance of the financial system. I'm sure you're familiar with Michael Hudson and his work on our control and use of the international finance system to effectively bully nations into growing the crops we want them to grow and doing doing the things in policy terms that we want them to do. So that's part of it. And uh Putin gave a speech two, three years ago in which he said that he would not mortgage Russia's future to the international finance system, that he would not allow the international financial system to subjugate Russia. Uh, That's a pretty profound statement uh, that not very many people paid a great deal of attention to at the time. And I think that that is part of what's going on. And the the bad news for us is that uh, our attempts to bully Russia have compelled the Russians to become increasingly independent, autarkic, to get along without us. And we, on the other hand, are finding it very difficult to get along without them. And I'm talking about Western Europe and the United States and a whole range of areas, metals, minerals, agriculture, not just uh, oil and natural gas. So I think that's part of it. The the other thing uh, that I think is going on uh, is is to go back to this business of posturing. I think there is something morally corrupt about asking tens of thousands of people to die in a proxy war for your interests, uh, which is what we're doing with the Ukrainians. It's really no longer about Ukraine. If it were just about Ukraine, I think the war would have ended some time ago. Because if you're a political realist in international relations and a war breaks out in Ukraine, a region of the world where too many wars have happened and too many millions of lives have been squandered, and you realize that this is immediately on Russia's border, a sane person would have said, wait a minute, we need to arrange a ceasefire. And uh, we would have sent the Secretary of State immediately to Moscow and said, "We, we need a ceasefire put an end to this as soon as possible, convene a conference that recognizes everyone's legitimate interests and find a way out of this. There was never any interest in that. Uh, This business of neutrality for Ukraine, which I and many, many others have been discussing for a very long time, uh, is something that was absolutely fundamentally rejected. In fact, if you go back to the late part of uh, March, when we still had a Ukrainian negotiating team and Zelensky acknowledged that he was prepared to accept neutrality and was open to discussions about the, uh, about some sort of potential form of autonomy for the Russians in Eastern Ukraine. As soon as that happened, it was shut down. He was told no. And he turned around and then became much more combative and resistant to any negotiated solution. Well, we've now succeeded in dragging this out to the point where Eastern Ukraine and increasingly portions of Western Ukraine are destroyed, destroyed. Thousands of people have died. Uh, We don't know how many, but tens of thousands have have 
died, and we've got, what, between 8 and 10 million refugees? And this is now becoming an enormous problem in Western Europe. No surprise, given the refugees they've already taken in, correct? Yeah, and 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 I think what's maybe the most disgusting part of all of this, besides the actual death of Ukrainians, is the idea that their death is being wrapped in Churchillian rhetoric by people like Boris Johnson and our Prime Minister and Biden, right? Like, you can almost hear the the kind of Churchill accent with them kind of saying, you know, we'll fight to the last Ukrainian, which is the kind of a cliche about it right now. But but it's awful to hear them trying to be statesmanlike while they're consigning civilians to certain death. It's just gobsmackingly ridiculous to me. Well, what I get uh, frequently from some of my West Point classmates is, Doug, what's wrong? What is wrong with you? Why aren't you in? Why why won't you get on board? Of course, I heard that about you know our events in Afghanistan and Iraq because I always opposed any policy that resulted in an occupation. My view was: you go in, you accomplish your limited objective, and you leave. Because the objective is always to do as little damage as possible, not as much as you can possibly do, and not to spend any more money than absolutely necessary. I mean, that's that's kind of my view in this world, if you're going to use military power at all. They said, well, don't, don't you understand? And, and, of course, many of them were eager to get in line to be paid handsomely for helping these efforts, whether it involved uh, advice or active training and equipment. And they said, well, what, what's wrong with Doug? He doesn't get it. Well, they're right. I don't get it. I, I'm not a multimillionaire. I have not enriched myself as a result of all these things. I was always very uncomfortable with it. Now with this Ukraine business, it seems to be really out of control. And I'm always astonished that almost on cue within the first few days of this intervention by the Russians in eastern Ukraine to destroy the Ukrainian forces that were poised at that point to attack, Every retired general officer is is universally singing the same tune, characterizing Russia as some sort of Soviet uh, throwback and uh, claiming that the Russians are committing all sorts of atrocities. And my own experience in the Balkans was that it's best not to say anything until you have an independent team constituted preferably uh, by people from neutral countries look at the uh, facts on the ground before you say anything, because frequently you found out that what had happened was very different from what was originally reported. And you know, Trish, journalists do write the first uh, sort of uh, chapter of any history of anything anywhere. And journalists are not terribly concerned about uh, the accuracy of what they write because too many of them are ideologically engaged in supporting the, the, the outcome for one side or the other. Well, or if not that, I think what you just said is true, but also just there's not a lot of oxygen for reporters who want to report against the narrative, right? You don't work, you're accused of terrible things. I mean, any reporter, look what they've done to Seymour Hirsch, for goodness sakes. I mean, any reporter who actually tries to bring truth to a debate or a situation like this is, as has happened to you as a military person, um, attacked in a very, very ad hominem 
nearly career-ending way. So there's a lot of reporters kind of going along to get along. And I also think there's a lot of reporters who aren't very bright, right? Like, let's talk about... <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Well, Trish, that's what I usually say about the generals. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Like, I'm just, I'm not yeah. seeing any big stars these days, you know, in the in the world of reporting. But I want to talk about just some basics about who's winning and who's losing. But but you, you brought up... Um, the atrocities. And I, I did want to talk to you about Bucha just for a minute, because I did a, quite a lot of reading about it. When I heard it, my, my sort of BS detector was like, oh, well, that's just like way too perfect for the propaganda campaign. Is that true? But you don't want to dismiss it. If it is true, there was a lot of suffering and people should be obviously punished for it. But but I, I, I read a piece by a guy named Jason Michael, Michael McCann, who did a kind of a timeline of when the Russians left and when the mayor kind of did his first Facebook address and was not responding at all like there were dead bodies in the streets. He was really happy. That was three days later, it seems. And that the Russians were gone, but the Ukrainian, some Ukrainian forces had come in. There's also an allegation in this piece that they were maybe under instructions to clean up if there were pockets of people supporting the Russians. So that's one theory. I don't know that it's true, but I'm really uncomfortable with the story of Bucha. I'm wondering where you sit on that. Well, the first point is that I don't know. I only know what's being reported in the press. Uh, and again, uh, the, the question that we learned to ask in the Balkans about these things was, first and foremost, key bono. Who benefits? Right. Where, right. where is the benefit to the Russians uh, associated with such an act? How does this help them? How does this improve their position? Uh, I don't see that it does. So then you go to point number two. Well, this is just a, an out-of-control unit of criminals. Uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm suspicious of that because normally you don't see those kinds of events happen in the opening year of a war. Those kinds of things tend to happen after people have been engaged over a long period of time and uh, individuals are tired. They have not been brought out and properly rested. Uh, or they have been attacked and uh, reduced in strength dramatically uh, and uh, they lose cohesion and discipline breaks down. I, I don't see any of those things applying at this point. So I, I am suspicious. But again, you know, Trish, that if you raise these issues and say, I'm, I'm unpersuaded by what I've seen, well, you're, a, you're a, an agent for Putin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you don't absurd. care about that. No, it is absurd. Or, or you don't care about the deaths of these people. And of course, we care very much about the deaths. Yes. but. But when, uh, for me, it's just, you know, I was an investigative reporter at CBC for many, many years on a show quite like 60 Minutes. And, you know, you kind of get that, and you may have this in war fighting situations, but you kind of get this feeling that something's just not quite right. And for me, it was part of that story was having the rape allegation thrown in. And I thought, wow, that really ticks all the boxes for woke Washington, doesn't it now? And so I, you know, I, I, I don't have any evidence. There, there is some interesting stuff online by credible people who are questioning the narrative. But is this something we'll ever get to the bottom of, or will it always just be an argument forever? Do you think? Well, my suspicion, given conditions here at home right now, 
And I'm talking about conditions involving the economy, conditions involving the breakdown and the rule of law in, in many areas of the United States, yeah. uh, the failure to secure our borders, to understand what or who is actually coming into the country with 100,000 Americans last year who died from fentanyl overdoses. Uh, and we don't even begin to talk about the other deaths associated with various forms of illegal substances overwhelmingly brought north into the United States from Mexico. Uh, we as a society are, are confronted with a number of serious emergencies. My suspicion is looking at uh, the market, the weak fundamentals of our economy, that these things are all going to uh, effectively explode onto the scene in the next few months to the point yeah. where, frankly, Ukraine will be on page yeah. 92. Well, the baby formula catastrophe has already kind of done that, right? And, and, and the fact that I was watching this morning on the news and they were showing cartons and crates and pallets of the stuff down at the border for the people who were crossing illegally into the country. And I thought, you know, people say that the Biden administration hates its own citizenry. And I, I have to say that that kind of neglect of um, such an issue like this, it, it just, it was, I actually gasped when I saw the photograph of the baby formula. Well, Trish, we have, we have citizens inside the United States who are suffering. Yeah. We have citizens who need support. All of the churches in the area where I live operate food banks. And these food banks have to be replenished on, on really almost a weekly basis because there are so many people that, that cannot afford to buy food. Now, with the rise in gas prices, I wonder how many are going to be unable to travel to where they must in order to have access to food and medicine and care. I, I know this to some people sounds uh, alarmist, and it certainly seems incomprehensible to many Americans who have always lived in an environment of abundance for, for their entire lives. But it's, it's a very real problem. And that's why I think this will sort of diminish uh, in importance to people. And yeah. we'll probably just walk away. And this, this is something that's very important strategically that, that deserves some mention, Trish. We, like the British, uh, are essentially a maritime and aerospace power. We are not a global land power. In other words, we don't maintain armies of the size that continental powers historically maintained. And what this means is that we can go somewhere for a brief period of time in Eurasia, Africa, or Latin America, but we never stay. Uh, we are there for some period of time, and then we leave. And this is a problem because if you're a maritime aerospace power, you come in, you change the dynamics in a region, you alter the natural forces, which result in some sort of balance of power. And then you pull out, having deformed those forces, the people that supported you are inevitably on the list for annihilation because they supported you yeah. and you go home and you forget about it. And you do you leave a lot of damage literally in your wake. Now we went through this in Vietnam, and we've done it in many other places, and this more recently in Iraq and Afghanistan. And this is what I fear will ultimately happen in Ukraine. 
I'm quite certain that uh, Mr. Zelensky will probably end up living somewhere out on the outskirts of Miami in in a mansion that I'm told he owns. Yes. Yeah, me too. I hear that. And no one will say anything. No one will say anything. Well, that's all right. Well, you mentioned Afghanistan, and I I saw that, obviously, for a woman, um, or as a woman, for me, seeing last week in the news that the burqa is now back on on the list for all women in Afghanistan, I thought, you know, all those guys and women who fought there, and this is what, you know, what we're left with. It's Well, Trish, it's, in Iraq, uh, you know, our friend Saddam was a loathsome creature. I don't think very many people would dispute that point. On the other hand, even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he got a lot of other things right in yeah. terms of controlling those kinds of matters. And creating the opportunity for women to get an education, to advance, and to play a role in society. Uh, I was just dis- distressed on a, on a scale that you can't imagine when I saw that Islam had been enshrined in the new Iraqi constitution that people from DOD and state had put together, that uh, ultimately Islam is the inspiration for and the, the final word in all matters pertaining to the law in Iraq. Yeah, th- these things never end well for women, do they? That's Well, the issue, know. Trish, is, it, is that why we went? Yeah. Was... I mean, that's, in- that's incredible. We could have put in any number of people to replace Saddam and his family and then essentially said, look, we're, we're going south of the Euphrates. If you need any help from us, let us know. But what we really want you to do is to do business with us and get out of this business of threatening your neighbors. And as long as you do that, we'll do business with you. If we had done that, we, not only would we probably have saved a million lives, but imagine how much better the situation in that country would have been for the people that lived there. Yeah, it's a, what a shocking failure that was. We, I could talk to you for all day about the coalition provisional authority <laughs> and stuff like that, like the green zone. Remember all that? Uh. Yeah. Anyway, um, I want to get into some of the more granular stuff about about Ukraine because it's hard to find it anywhere else. So I'll just kind of do like a lightning round. Um, who's winning? The Russians. And the Russians have been dominating the, the situation strategically and operationally almost from the beginning, despite uh, obvious problems and, and difficulties that they had at the outset. And I think that that truth is becoming harder and harder to suppress. Now, when we say winning, we're talking about uh, what happens when the Russians uh, and the Ukrainian forces encounter each other. In all but very few cases, the Russians crush the Ukrainians. When you're in a position to dominate your enemy, you don't withdraw into cities and create many fortresses, stock them with ammunition, food, and supplies, and hope that you can outlast uh, the people that are on the outside. That's not a prescription for victory. Napoleon said, the enemy who stays within his fortifications is beaten. Well, the Ukrainians have been staying in their fortifications almost from the beginning. So the answer to the question is militarily, operationally, and strategically, the Russians. And so they now have, I'm just, I pulled up my little map here. They they now pretty much have all of that Donbass area that they wanted and and Crimea. But that's kind of, that, that, that didn't happen as quickly as one would have expected. Why do you think they didn't just kind of come in 
and grab it in a very, very aggressive way. I mean, they seemed at the beginning of this to be pussyfooting a bit, didn't they? Well, Trish, I, I was in for a lot of criticism when I was interviewed very early in the morning. I don't know what you're like, but I'm a night person. I'm not an early morning person. And this was at eight o'clock in the morning and I was talking to someone on uh, Fox Business and he said, he asked the question somewhat like you. Uh, and I said, well, I think they were too gentle at the beginning. And, and the word I was looking for was not gentle. It was restrained. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, th- there are two, two things that happened. First of all, the Russians forgot what they were dealing with. The majority of the Russians who live in eastern Ukraine, uh, and that's where the Russians are now, uh, they were very suspicious of the Russian intervention because the Russians from the very beginning had said, we are coming in to eliminate the Ukrainian threat. And we basically want the following three things. We want neutrality for Ukraine. We want uh, the Donbass and Luhansk republics to have autonomy or independence within Ukraine and rights for Russian speaking or culturally Russian citizens. And we want recognition of Russia's legitimate claim to Crimea. Those those were the basic objectives. We are not coming to seize territory, and we are not staying. Well, that was a mistake, Trish, because if you're a Russian in eastern Ukraine, first of all, you're a second-class citizen and have been for certainly since 2014, some would say earlier. And you see the Russian army is coming in, but they've made it very clear they're not staying. So then you say, well, I'm not going to help these people. I'm not going to work with these people because if they're leaving and I do anything, the Ukrainian secret police will show up after they're gone and put a bullet through my head and kill all of my family. So tens of thousands, if not a million people easily uh, that would have actively supported and cooperated did not because They didn't want to end up dead in the long run. Uh, So that was the first mistake. The second, I think you can argue that, yes, they should have come in on uh, more defined axes, and they probably should have concentrated forces in a few key areas sooner. But I don't think that was their objective. I think they really thought that once they moved in and isolated these Ukrainian forces, that uh, Kiev would negotiate. And they had some evidence to believe that in the first three weeks. Uh, And then, of course, it became clear that they were not really fighting uh, the Ukrainian government or compelling the Ukrainian government to do anything. They were up against us. And, of course, by that time, (coughs) it was too late. They had had gone in under a false set of assumptions. They had to change their assumptions. And what you see now is a result of those uh, modifications and changes. Do do you think Zelensky would have behaved more <laughs> uh, uh, would have behaved differently or been more compliant if this narrative of the heroic Ukrainian people against the forces of Hitlerian darkness from Russia <laughs> had not you know had not taken place? Do you, do you think I I don't really know anything about him. You know, I I sort of see him. He clearly loves the limelight and has adapted to this role that he knows America wants him to play. But do, do based on what you know about him, do you think if we had not had this massive propaganda campaign that he would have gone to the table and said, yeah, you can, you know, you can have that 
and uh, I'm not going to push for NATO NATO sta- status, which I think he actually said to I, I read in Asia on France Press, I, I, I swear I read this, that he, and it didn't get a lot of publicity, but that he said several weeks ago he was cool with some kind of arrangement around um, the eastern part of the country and and that he NATO was not a necessity for him anymore. And then that just went away. Like people yes. just stuck. What what happened there? I think I think Washington, uh, with its uh, trusty ally in London, said, no, you will fight mm. until we tell you to stop. Mm. And I, I really think that it, to fully answer the question about Zelensky, you've got to ask the question, how does a comedian slash drag queen uh, <laughs> come from uh, anonymity out of nowhere to become what he is? Well, obviously, he has the backing of this man, Kolomoisky, yeah. uh, who is a very strange character, this oligarch, uh, the man who is funding all of these uh, bizarre Nazi-style formations. You know, and as I tell people all the time, we really need to stop using these terms Nazi and communist because nothing happening happening today has anything to do with that. But unfortunately, we have a lot of people today who look back on the past, don't understand what really did happen. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they, they uh, sort of usurp control of these symbols, which is what I, I think has happened. And the, the symbols become a justification for hate and murder and so forth. But, you know, what's the story on this man? I think you've got it right. I watched it very carefully. It was clear to me that he was receptive to neutrality and to what you just described in eastern Ukraine. The outlying question was this business of Crimea. And again, I've come under attack because I've tried to say repeatedly that any Ukrainian claim on Crimea is ahistorical. Uh, until 1776, when the Russian armies finally moved into Crimea, it was a Mongol Tartar Khanate and a tributary state of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but since 1776, it's been dominated largely by the Russians and controlled and governed by them. And they have a large Russian population there. And if you don't like that, well, then it would make more sense to meet with Mr. Erdogan, who probably as the current leader of Turkey has a greater claim to the place than the Ukrainians. <laughs> so, uh, there's no there's no understanding of the region, uh, of its history, the people that lived there. We we don't know anything about it. Uh, and that's the problem. So that we sort of dismiss out of hand uh, uncomfortable historical realities that don't fit within the narrative that's being created. And this brings us back to the issue that we began with, narrative. We've created a narrative. And anyone who challenges the narrative is the enemy, is the traitor is evil, is bad, like the people that he is theoretically defending. I'm not defending the Russians. I'm simply saying I'm an American. I'm not involved in this. I don't want to be involved in this. But I know how explosive the region is. Therefore, as an American, I have an interest in bringing this conflict to an end on the best terms that we can get for both sides in the hopes of avoiding any future conflict in the region. That's it. That's all that we as Americans should be interested in. I would think that Canadians would feel similarly. But we have no interest in going into this fight or in keeping it going in perpetuity. And I think NATO is going to be torn apart, uh, largely because we don't want to stop. 
and the Germans aren't going to go along with it. I can tell you that uh, this uh, Annalena Baerbock, who is the uh, German foreign minister, she's attracted a lot of attention. She's a little crusader uh, who wants to right all the world, wrongs in the world and has decided to uh, become part of the Russian hate club. And she was speaking a couple of days ago, I think it was in Wuppertal in, in northwest Germany. She was pelted with eggs and the population kept calling her warmonger. Wow. Get out of here. Uh, of course, there's there's no interest in going to war in Ukraine under any circumstances by virtually anybody in NATO with the possible exception of the polls. And we know from the latest polling data, 60% of the polls have said they don't support a conflict with Russia. So it's back to your other question at the beginning. We have governments that are pushing for things that the electorates don't really want and don't really support. And that aren't aren't the humane answer, right? The, The only thing that matters is how do we end it? What's the outcome? And the fact that legacy media is not focused on that and is allowing people both here and in and in the states too to be carried away with this idea of a romantic fight against this terrible person no matter how many lives it takes is to, it's one of the biggest abdications of moral responsibility i think in the history i have never seen a propaganda campaign like this and i've seen many this one is just like a fire hose Trish, you're right. Uh, I, I must say that uh, this is astonishing to me. And I remember in 2003, the tremendous press offensive that went on. Uh, you, you'll recall uh, Condoleezza Rice talking about a mushroom cloud over Washington. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was over the top and crazy. Uh, but compared with that, this is this is truly being infinitely worse. There, well, because they're doing, it's kind of interesting, they're doing the same thing that they did with some of the COVID public health policies, that if you don't go along with this, you're a bad person. And people are very, very easily captured by that right now for, you know, it's a, I, I think it's a bigger cultural discussion I'd love to have with you one day, but people's lives are meaningless. So they grab onto these things and don't really think them uh, through. But anyway, I want to just finish because I know we're running out of time, but I want to kind of finish my lightning round uh, for yes. people who are really keen to have the latest kind of information. So Russia's going to win, in your view. When will that be? What will that look like? In well, Russia is already beginning to consolidate uh, uh, its administrative control of, of parts of eastern Ukraine. And the area where they are operating now is uh, always being Russian. And uh, I think you're going to see a line eventually develop just a little west of Kharkov that runs south, almost like the top of a banana, and then cuts across uh, eastern Ukraine to the Dnieper River, uh, somewhere south of Kiev. And that sort of banana-like construct on the ground will become uh, the new uh, Ukrainian Republic of Russia or be annexed as, uh, as part of Russia. I, I don't know precisely how it will work, but I think something like that will occur. And as I pointed out before, we won't support any negotiated outcome because we've said uh, it's unconditional surrender. We've told Putin either you surrender unconditionally or we'll destroy you. The problem with the second part of the equation will destroy you is that by this summer, I think we'll be focused on all the things we discussed earlier. 
So I think it'll just end up being a de facto partition of Ukraine along the lines that I just described. And that, that will, it will sit there. And then the question is, what do the Europeans do? And this is where I think the Germans uh, and the French in particular, also the Italians, Greeks, others, will have to stand up and say, no, wait a minute, this has got to end. We've got to do business. And remember, as much as we have decided now that China is next on the menu and, and that we hate China, the truth is the Europeans want to do business with the Chinese and the Chinese are happy to do business with them. And one of the things the Chinese want to do is complete this one belt, one road across Central Asia uh, that reaches through Ukraine and Russia to Europe. And the Europeans are going to say that's not going to happen as long as we're engaged in these wars. And now we may think that it's in our interest for this to never happen and therefore we want to keep the pot boiling. But I don't think the Europeans long term are going to put up with that. And that's why I, I warned from the beginning that I thought this could tear NATO apart. Because our interests and the European interests are not identical. The Europeans really do want stability and peace in Europe. And we've been on the side of instability and conflict in Europe. The two are incompatible. And and Finland, though, now is going, trying to go for NATO membership, right? As of a couple of days ago? Well, well, actually, you know, this you bring this up, Mike. I don't have too many contacts in Finland. Uh, and I do have more contacts in Sweden. But my impression is that if you put it to a vote, a referendum in Sweden, uh, the Swedish population would not support NATO membership. Oh, really? And why would that be? Well, they don't see any real need for it. Yeah. And again, all of this is based on the propaganda that Russia is this looming aggressive power ready to march on Europe when there's no evidence for that and there's no capability for it. You know, when you look at an enemy, you, you look at the force structure. And you try to, to derive from the force structure what you think the intention is. Well, if you look at the Russian uh, force structure, it doesn't have the capacity to attack Western Europe. It's impossible. Uh, and that's what people don't seem to, to understand. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, Saddam Hussein's non-existent mushroom cloud. You have the same thing right now with Russia. There's a non-existent threat there. And they say, well, if we don't destroy them now, eventually they'll come back and they'll do more. Well, Russia has taken 30 years to sort of fall apart, crash, and gradually recover. I don't see a great deal changing in the short term. But there is one thing that's worth keeping in mind, Trish. I do want to say this before you go. People have decided to demonize Vladimir Putin. Uh, I don't know the man. Uh, I've never met him. But I know a little bit about the people in, in line to replace him who could. And Vladimir Putin is a rare bird because he's actually been, from the very beginning, very pro-Western. And he understands the West. He lived outside of Russia, outside of the Soviet Union. And uh, he's a Renaissance man compared to anyone standing in line to replace him. Yikes. <laughs> well, what, you know, the, the total cognitive dissonance created by their position is that on one hand, they say, you know, Putin's crazy. And then on the other hand, they say, but we know he won't use nuclear weapons. And I'm like, well, how do you kind of measure those two things? How do you square that? That just yeah. makes, makes no sense. Yeah, listen, you're right. And I I also will say that I totally blame Hillary Clinton for this. because <laughs> <laughs> I blame her for everything in the foreign policy sphere. But but I was reading about her over the last couple of days in anticipation of speaking to you. And, um, you know, she was gunning for this after the reset button 
you know, stupidity, stupidity failed. She really started on a campaign of wanting to engage militarily with Russia. There's a piece in Foreign Policy magazine where she was calling for a no-fly zone over Syria and various things like, and and of course she did the the, the Russia hoax and the you know Putin's puppet and all that kind of stuff. She, she more than any other living person, in my view, is responsible for where we are. Well, Trish, I. You know, you may well be right. I really haven't studied her in particular, and that (laughs) that may be accurate. One of the things that I would say, though, is this. You know, certainly, if you go back to the early 60s when the Vietnam debacle got off the ground, uh, we had uh, Harold Macmillan in London, and uh, there was a great effort uh, undertaken in Washington to drag the British into Vietnam. And he said, no. And I've forgotten the name of the prime minister who preceded Trudeau at the time in Canada, but the Canadians said no as well. Yeah, we didn't go. And frankly, you know, I I always thought that London and Ottawa were useful counterbalances to Looney Tunes in Washington. Yeah. That uh, you could turn to the British and the Canadians and say, you know, we're thinking about doing X and that someone up there in Ottawa or someone in London would say, well, that's all very well and good, but uh, I think you've lost your mind. And these are the reasons why you shouldn't do it. Yeah. That doesn't exist now. I know it doesn't. have anybody we can turn to. No, I know. And you know what I blame for that? I blame globalism for that, right? Like the loyalty is no longer to a cultural identity, especially in Canada. I'm doing a show next week with an immigrant who's sorry she came here because it's not the Canada she thought she was coming to, right? And I I do think that the globalist agenda has nullified the idea that foreign policy decisions are based on what the public might support or not support based on our national identity, right? I just don't think they care what we think anymore. Well, I, I think that's probably true. I One last point on Canada. I was taken as a young man in, uh, to Expo 67 in Montreal. <laughs> and the principal reason I was taken up there was to see the massed pipes and drums of the Canadian Armed Forces. And there were tears in my grandparents' Aww. eyes because they said, we want you to see the great Canadian Army before it's destroyed. And, of course, they were heartbroken that the Union Jack was removed from the Canadian flag because they thought that was an important distinction that separated Canadians from Americans. And they tended to view Canada, once again, much as I uh, have historically viewed it, along with London as a sort of voice of reason that would stand up and uh, sort of help us navigate the troubled waters of being a superpower. I don't think that that kind of, um, I, I just don't think our prime minister thinks that way anymore. And I actually have it on good authority because I, I interviewed his brother. And uh, and he said that he just, he loves being part of the G7. He really digs the motorcades. He wants to be part of that. <laughs> no, seriously. He was a drama teacher, right? Like he's not the deepest, <laughs> he wasn't, the, he's not the deepest guy, right? So, so th- that that's the pull of this. That it's more about, I feel sometimes his relationships with other world leaders and with the kind of WEF crowd than it is, you know, with us. That's that's my sense of it. So that's kind yes, of every, sad. everybody wants to go to the uh, uh, Davos conference in uh, Switzerland, right? 
Yeah, I'm becoming a one-issue voter on that, actually. I, I think that anybody who's doing that is not worthy of my vote. I'm sick of it all. You know, I'm really sick of it, as I'm sure you people are, too, down there. Well, it's possible to be a, a good American and a good Canadian or, or a good British citizen uh, and still uh, support global stability, peace, and prosperity. The notion that you have to shed your national identity, identity. in right. order to be someone who supports global peace, stability, and prosperity is, is nonsense. In fact, the opposite seems to be the case. Yeah, absolutely true. Listen, I am so happy to have had you on. I, I know that our listeners will be thrilled because, you know, as you know, we're not getting anything even remotely, honestly, analytical or truth-telling about this this conflict. I, there are days when I can't even turn it on um, because I get so upset. So I, I know that this will be very therapeutic for, for our listeners who are dedicated to the idea of critical thinking and who know very, very well how badly legacy media is performing right now. So you're a breath of fresh air, Colonel, and I thank you for doing this. Uh, thanks, Trish. God bless Canada. Give everyone my best. I will. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Goodbye.